This podcast is brought to you by Rode Microphones, providing premium audio products at an accessible price, enabling people from around the world to achieve their creative goals. With mics for studio, video recording, and podcasting, you're bound to find the mic you need. To find out more, visit Rode.com. When we first um, started talking about a topic for the panel today, uh, a few months ago, uh, I wanted to come up with something that's not discussed all the time, very often. Uh, so since I'm from Nashville, uh, I've, just about every show I've worked on involves a lot of music. Um, and so it's, it's kind of close to me. So uh, I thought we'd do it on music, and in particular with a focus on uh, music recording live on the set. Uh, typically, of course, when there's a, um, a production that involves music, uh, I think the default concept is that it will be playback, uh, you lip sync to pre-recorded playback, which certainly has its, its role and is necessary often, but I think too often it's overlooked uh, the aspect of actually recording music performances live on the set. Um, so we'll, we'll get into that in a, in a bit, but I want to introduce the panel. Let's see, uh, first uh, Gary Bourgeois, Th- thanks Gary. <laughs> I'm, I'm the one guy in post-production that doesn't do what you guys do. I'm not too sure what I'm doing here. On the other hand, I think I always have something to say. Okay, <laughs> we're, we're, we're counting on it. So in addition to giving an excellent keynote presentation. Oh, thank, you. thank you very much. Um, he's a member of CAS and re-recording mixer, uh, uh, including Captain America, the first Avenger, Criminal, and Ghostbusters 2. Um, and then next to, where's Phil? There at the end. Uh, Phil Palmer, CAS, uh, production mixer. Um, how many episodes of Glee have you done? I, I think we, we concluded at somewhere around 122, 121. And how, how many music performances? Um, we stopped counting at 750. 750, yeah. We, 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 we hit 750 and said, let's just call it that. Yeah. I think it was like 766 or something. So you can see it's great, great to have Phil here. Uh, so he did, did Glee and is also currently the mixer on Better Call Saul. Yep. Uh, David Klutz, where's your hand, David? Yep, David Klutz, hello. Um, so he's a music editor, uh, including productions uh, like Game of Thrones, Glee, we work with Phil, and Iron Man. Yep, hello. Thanks for being here today. <laughs> Musical Game of Thrones. Uh-huh. And one of the uh, originators of nonlinear computer-based, we now call Pro Tools playback, is Gary Raymond. Uh, uh, recently worked on Roadies. Uh, in addition, has worked on Jungle Book and Almost Famous. Ra- raise your hand, Gary. Hi. Thanks, Gary. And to my left, part of the Nashville contingent, is Peter Curlin, production sound mixer. A member of CAS uh, is well known for being the production mixer on shows like Walk the Line, Oh Brother Where Art Thou, Inside Lewin Davis, and he wanted me to mention Hail Caesar in case anyone had seen it. <laughs> yeah. Mark Ilano, thumbs up for Mark Ilano. <laughs> I love Hail Caesar. And pretty much every other Coen Brothers show. Uh, and then um, we had Joseph McGee advertised as, as coming. He's a fantastic music, music editor, uh, recording engineer, and, and playback specialist. He couldn't be here. He's in Nashville, and uh, something came up. He, he couldn't come. So fortunately, in his chair is Tim Boot, um, also a music uh, editor, engineer, um, and worked on Jersey Boys, uh, Dream Girls, uh, and, and Hannah Montana, the movie is where we met, right? That's right, doing playback with you. <laughs> In case anyone had seen that. <laughs> yeah. so, so my take on, and my experience with music and television production, um, music has been the, kind of the foundation of my career. Uh, I was a classical uh, musician, played French horn in the National Symphony, and all that stuff that classical musicians do. And I went directly from that to being in the sound department of the Hee Haw Show. Right? So <laughs> I'm not sure which way was up, but that's what happened. Um, so um, be- because of that, possibly, uh, there's nothing that's deeper in my, in my heart as far as sound goes as sitting in an orchestra, hearing all the acoustics, the din of 
the auditorium, uh, players tuning up, there's things happening. So it's, it's a very ambient experience, right? Um, so, and, and what I really enjoy about recording dialogue is not only the words being said, but the, the sound uh, of the, the actor, the sound of the room, uh, the ambience that makes it so real, so that it sounds like it looks. So when I record uh, music for television, uh, I try to do the same thing with the music performance, so that it sounds live, because it is. Um, so we capture the acoustics of the room, um, the, the nuances of, the, um, of the, the actor who's doing the performance, and so forth. So, so that, that's kind of my, my mission uh, on the, the show I'm doing now, which is Nashville, the Nashville television show. Um, I did the pilot, and we started off that way to do as much live as possible. Um, and it took a while to get everybody on board, because you've got to, uh, you know, the first ADs are typically, you know, used to shouting playback, right? Um, the producers are used to doing, you know, playback. When I interviewed for the Nashville show, um, they said, we're kind of nervous about this because we've never done a, a show with music. And I said, well, that's okay, because I've never done one without music, right? So, um, and now, the producers, the, the creator, Cali Curry, um, the, 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 the guy in charge of the, of the musical part of the show, they're fully on board with recording as much live as possible. And I think the show benefits from it. Um, so, you know, that's, that's kind of my reason for advocating live. And also, I think because it's such a default concept of going to uh, playback, you know, pre-record playback and lip sync, that it's just not considered often enough to record, an, especially an acoustical performance, live and capture those nuances and the naturalness of it. Um, so that, that's kind of my experience and the way I view it. Uh, there's a whole um, a technical aspect uh, of doing that that involves post-production. For instance, in the Nashville show, even though we do most of the performances live, we still rely heavily on pre-recorded playback uh, because often we go from an acoustical performance, let's say two actors sitting on a couch writing a song, playing guitar, maybe piano. Uh, we start that way and then segue into a montage of a video background uh, into full-blown pre-record studio recording with full instrumentation. Uh, to do that, it's, it's, uh, it's quite, you gotta jump through a lot of technical hoops. We typically start with uh, earwigs so that, with playback so the actors can uh, get, get the rhythm and the pitch so that when, when they do transition from live to playback, it's seamless. You hear the acoustics change, uh, but otherwise it's seamless and, and it's very believable. So that kind of in a nutshell is where I'm at with, with live music recording on the set. So I want to get the, um, uh, oh, and I'm sure there's, there's probably one of the six different opinions on how this should be done and, and what's most important. Uh, so I'm looking forward to hearing those. Uh, so I'll pass it on to Peter Curlin right now, just to get your experience on, on the um, you know, recording uh, music live for those shows. And, uh, for instance, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? I'm assuming, I believe it's true that there was a mix of playback and live recording. Yeah, there was, uh, there was some of each, and then there was another um, hybrid that, we, that you didn't mention, um, which is we did a lot of stuff where the instrumental was playback, uh, and the vocals were live using either earwigs or um, bearing the playback track under the live vocals. And we, you know, we did that because, it, first of all, it was, the, it was the, the, the beginning of the flexibility in playback. We were, we were not using Pro Tools. Pro Tools on the set, I don't think anybody was using yet. We were using a very weird um, um, system, the 360 system shortcut that it lets you select playback, but it lets you edit, but it's not it's not multi-track. Um, but it did allow us to separate the vocals from the instrumental so that we could feed a, a instrumental track and do the vocals live. And it even got more hybrid than that because we would do scenes where one of the actors who who was presented couldn't actually sing. So we would have one actor live, two actors pre-recorded, and the instrumentals pre-recorded. So we did a fair amount of that, a lot of straight playback. Um, uh, primarily for big crowds, and then we did uh, several um, just straight out live pieces that 
I want to make the point that you just made, actually, which is there's many reasons to, to use do a live record, many reasons to use playback. And one reason to not do live record is when the actor isn't capable. Maybe they're not a great singer, or maybe they just refuse to do it. Then, of course, it needs to be playback, as you mentioned. Well, it, it, sometimes it has, it has a lot to do with their skill. And if they're playing an instrument, their facility with the instrument and, and how, how much they can keep on tempo and pitch. Um, that's part of it. In some cases, though, in, in Lewin Davis, uh, Oscar was perfect in tempo and pitch. He, you know, he would play the songs over and over again very similarly, but it may be that there was a subtle difference between the timing of his fingering on a chord and when a syllable of, of singing came out, and that difference would make it very hard to cut. So even though we chose with him to do everything live, it did mean more work in uh, editorial afterwards. Um, but I would not want to have done that movie any other way. In fact, we couldn't really because we didn't create playback tracks for it. Yeah, uh, with, with Oh Brother, Where Aren't Thou, I remember a scene where there's a single person leaning up against a tree playing guitar and singing. Did you recall that scene? There was one around a campfire. That one, yeah. Yeah, that was all live. And is, is that the one responsible for the, the Grammy you have on your mantle? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes, because he came out, because Mike Bersante, the um, T-Bone's recording engineer, actually came out to Mississippi with, you know, two microphones and special preamps and all the stuff he would normally use, but he didn't have the advantage of having his stuff um, hanging from a pole um, operated by a qualified boom operator. And that's what made that scene sound good and be possible. Yeah, Com complete with nighttime crickets, as I recall, and, correct? And burning, burning logs. And yeah. you, can hear, you can hear mosquitoes biting if you listen carefully. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so that, that's a really good example, I think, of the imperfections of a, of a recording. We would call it imperfections if it was in a recording studio but it's actually captured live, and it makes the whole thing more believable, and I think more enjoyable. It looks like it sounds, and, and, and vice versa. So, um, yeah. so wh while we're on the subject of uh, production sound, just for a little contrast and different production, um, Phil, can you tell us some about your uh, experience with Glee and, and the process of live versus playback? Yeah, um, I'm, I'm sort, of a, sort of an opposite camp on that, is, is that we would... We generally opt for playback over over live performance almost almost all of the time, except for very selected moments. Um, for a lot of reasons, um, time uh, time being the main thing. When 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 we would do an episode in hopefully eight days, that was our that was our schedule. Sometimes we went over a lot. Um, uh, so we would have. Anywhere from five to nine, ten musical numbers. If and if you included some of the the um, mashups, we would have more than that. So we would do sometimes two, two or three musical numbers in a day, and sometimes you know less, but or or none. But uh, we would only have a certain amount of time to do it. And live record we, sometimes uh, requires a little bit more time to do, and and um, so we had to pick and choose them very carefully, and. When we did um, the live, we would always pre-record. I can I can only think of one time where we didn't pre-record, and it was, and there was a pre-record anyway, but it was a temp vocal, yeah. and he said, "Get that thing out of there. I don't want to hear it." Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, we, uh, my my thought on it is there's da David was our music editor, so David and I had a, a daily dialogue. <laughs> David built all the sessions for us, uh, amazing. Um, and when we would choose live, uh, which was rare, uh, it was usually that acoustic, sitting on a couch, maybe acoustic guitar. Piano. Pian piano was, we had, we had one particular um, artist on the show who was a phenomenal uh, pianist and singer, and he could do both. Um, we would not record the piano live, it would always be the hybrid that, that Peter talked about, the, the the um, music would be pre-recorded, and we would we would hear wig it, and they would sing to the track. That way, editorially, they could um, they weren't jumping through as many hoops. Um, but our our experience was um, there, and I and I mentioned this in our little meeting we had beforehand. There's two key moments that are the giveaway for um, a, a musical 
and bringing the viewer into the performance, which is really what we're trying to do. And there's two, two moments. It's the breath before they sing, and it's the exhale after they sing. And everything that happens in the middle part, you can kind of mess with that. Because <laughs> that's just the song, and then the, hopefully the artist is selling the song. And we were talking about that earlier too, is that if the artist is selling the song and their lip sync isn't spot on, I, 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 not too many people are really gonna say anything because they're, they're watching an artist perform. But it's that moment before the vocal and after the vocal, and we would strive to grab that, and then we'd be off to the races with playback. So yeah, so Phil, you mentioned uh, you and David have daily conversations. Mm -hmm. um, is that part part of the decision making process about how things will be done? Oh, uh, we we don't no. We David and I would have conversations on how. Um, how would you say it? We would have it on... How I'm going to get you the track in time. <laughs> Frequently in time. <laughs> because they were mixing it all night. And yeah. We had a really... I mean, I don't want to divert too much, but we had this 24-hour cycle of, um, of music production. We sometimes... Yeah, go yeah, ahead. Our, our song producer, Adam Anders, uh, has a studio in, in Sweden. So they, would, they could track all day long in Los Angeles with the actors, and then overnight... The tracks would be mixed in uh, in, in Stockholm and in Stockholm, and, and then I'd at, wake up with a yeah. link to download a session and quickly prep it with click and thumb track and time code and speed things up for slow motion. Mm -hmm. Several different speeds we needed often. Actually, I was doing that all the time. I think by the, the end we were doing um, two and three speeds up and usually a speed down, um, um, pitch matched and time code mapped so that the time codes matched um, at a high rate so that they could, lips would sync when they're moving in slow motion or high speed, either way. Also, some of the, some of the actors um, were doing playback to songs they hadn't sung yet, so sometimes yes. they were, they were lip-syncing to mm. other temp, temp singers, temp vocalists. Right, we were always behind, so often, <laughs> I mean always, <laughs> so, and I know nobody here knows that, what's that like? And so we often, there was a, a very common thing that we would, we would get shouted at us, is that me or is that the temp vocalist? And sometimes the actor couldn't tell because <laughs> there were a couple of them that were really good at singing just like the artist. Yeah. But we, we had temps uh, completely pre-do the song because it was faster than they were always in the studio. Okay. Tim, as far as doing pre-records and being in the whole process, I guess you're, you're relating to all this conversation? Yeah, I'm, I'm on the fence, because like you, I agree the live record is fantastic. And I did Jersey Boys, was all live record, 100% live record. And it was fantastic. We talked about this beforehand. It's, it's the situation sort of dictates it. Um, and I think one of the fundamental issues is that directors and producers are very inexperienced at shooting music. You know, this group is really good at it, but most of them are not. So they kind of rely on us. So um, you know, I, the, the choice comes down to your situation. And on Jersey Boys was a 39-day shoot. We were shooting three music scenes a day, all live record, live instruments, and we pulled it off because Clint Eastwood can do that. And he can, and the, and the, and the singers were all from the Broadway show, so they had the vocal abilities to sing all day long. Now, at the same time, we've done scenes on other shows, like when I did um, Cat in the Hat, we shot one music scene over five days. It was absurd. But, and, and to think about doing that live record would have been impossible, because A, Mike Myers is not a singer, and even if he was, getting a similar vocal performance over five days is absolutely impossible. Uh, and even if you could do it in one day, if you know anything about singers, um, you can't get, a singer can really only sing for an hour or two, total in a day, and if you got a 12 hour shoot day, you're not gonna get a vocal performance at the beginning of the day that's the same, at the, same as the end. So I'm really on the fence. I think it really comes down to the situations, and their situation playback was killer, and your stuff live was killer. For us on Jersey Boys, it was fantastic. And then in Dreamgirls, it was mostly playback, and there's some fantastic playback performances in Dreamgirls, so it, the situation dictates it. Exactly, yeah. uh, the, the, the Nashville show has, has a big advantage of all the actors uh, are strong singers and and players, except for one. In fact, that that's 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 the uh, one caveat when you can't do 
uh, live record is when the actor refuses to do it, right? And uh, so we have one actor who feels like they're not the, a very strong singer, uh, so they, they choose to you know, be pre-record only. So that's, that's one reason when you can't do it. So, uh, yes, uh, uh, Gary Raymond? Yeah, I just, so I just wanted to say something here. Um, so what, what everyone's talking about, everyone's really good on this panel, but one of the issues, obviously, is economics versus artistry. And TV, obviously, some chuckles here. TV, I mean, you know, TV, there are constraints. Uh, film, generally, you have more time. And then we're also talking about raising the awareness because a lot of times when I get called, it's already a done decision what they're going to do. Um, in 93, when I did Gypsy with Bette Midler, we did something that I had did, hadn't thought, that, that I'm not aware of anyone else doing at that point, which was we contacted the um, pre-record engineer. <coughs> it was all pre-record, but we contacted the pre-record engineer, and we basically got them to agree with our production sound mixer, I think it was David Ronnie at the time, to use similar microphones. Because one of the things that to me is very jarring is when you go into pre-record and the acoustics are totally different. And so you've got lip sync as one issue, acoustics is another issue. And to me, it's through the entire song. And so even though we did that with pre-record, when she was in the kitchen talking and then went into a song, you felt she was right there with it. And she, and she was lip syncing to her own material and she was pretty good at it. So I think that's... it. it there are other considerations, like you're saying. For instance, on roadies, everything was absolutely live. The reason we were able to do that is because we were dealing with all professional uh, bands and performers who had been doing the same material, in some cases like Eddie Vedder and Lindsey Buckingham, for you know decades. So there was no pre-record. There was no issues about uh, pitch or, <clears throat> or tempo. We also were not intercutting with dialogue. Um, and generally the coverage was of them, and then they would move on to a dialogue scene. So that worked. The other extreme is, as has been mentioned, when you get a situation where, you know, I'll, I'll get called on a TV show and it's a little scene where there's a dialogue scene and, and it's in a club and in the background there's a band and they're not, you know, they're atmosphere, they're not integral, it's not about that music stuff. And they're real musicians, but they're cast in the band. They got the music, you know, a half hour before or whatever. And, you know, uh, in those situations, uh, you almost have to go with, that's a pre-record situation. But I do want to make one point. I think it's really important to always record. Always record. Sometimes you can use the performance. Even if you can't, at least editorial has guide. And Tim brought this up in the green room. It was a good point. Sometimes you can overdo the editing. But at least you have got better guide than looking at lips and that kind of thing. For, for getting sync. And, and, then, and then the last thing, real quick, is, um, for instance, when I did Hangover One, the Dan Band, if you guys saw that, you know, the inappropriate wedding band, we did what I think is kind of more the paradigm now uh, in the in-between kind of production level things where, we, as been mentioned, we had the music, the band was fed, uh, it was his band, but they were all fed the music in earwigs, but uh, Dan sang live, the set was quiet, and I recorded him live. So the key element, which in this case was the vocal, was captured live, had the live acoustics, but we still had the pitch, tempo, we had timing, efficiency, and went very smoothly. So I think that's something hopefully we'll see more of, yeah. which I think you're talking about. Good, good, good stuff. Good, good, uh, Gary Bourgeois, uh, so all, all these um, you great, great intentions that, that uh, we're spouting I, off I, here. I find this really fascinating from the guy yeah. that that takes all of this stuff and yeah you know, so puts all, all these together. things end up on your and, table and to tell you the truth if i had any idea of how much you put into this <laughs> <laughs> holy jeez wow there's a lot of technical stuff that i didn't know was going on um what's what's interesting uh for me is that quite often decisions are made um and you know, this is what you've got to work with. It happens quite often. Until such time as it's not working. And then all of a sudden somebody says, well, we do have the live version if you want to hear that. Um, and then you listen to the live version, you're going, wow, that's great energy. Like, that's fantastic. But, but at the same time, from time to time, I've got to go to the playback version and that sort of stuff. So it becomes uh, an endeavor to how do I work this combination? You mentioned something that, to me, was very important. Somebody goes into a pre-record with a Neumann, and then they're shot live with a Sheps, 
and I and it's not it's going to be difficult to time to match. I find also, for instance, that um, if I listen to a live track, I can easily s get the sense of the space. So at least that gives me a, re a reference point for making the playback stuff sound more live. I, I actually have to study the room. Um, and the room is not necessarily the room that it was done in, because what we're looking at, I have to look at only at what the audience is going to see. You could be in Madison Square Garden if everything's close up. I can't have it sounding like Madison Square Garden. Um, I find also that, for instance, um, these are all sort of challenges that I'm just talking about that we, we find, um, that uh, in a pre-record, uh, the singer is singing into a microphone and their chest isn't moving. Yeah. And yeah, so absolutely. there's this uh, one, and this is the same for ADR anyway. So if, if somebody does ADR and they don't move their chest, if they bend over, et cetera, the diaphragm position changes and it, it's difficult to sell that movement. If a singer is prancing and dancing around the stage and there's no sense of that exhaustion or that effort because it was pre-recorded, I'm like having a hard time. And now I'm starting to say to myself, I need Foley feet just to simply sell the liveness of this, okay? Um, and this is all strange stuff, but we went through this very thing on, on our show, and I was, I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll tell you our story after okay. you finish that, all right. how we dealt with that. I, 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 I'll say uh, if I had any idea how much thought you put into it, we would <laughs> <laughs> There you go. I, I might, I, I've got to tell you something really kind of amusing, that uh, I'm right now I'm working with, um, um, what's his name? Oh, God, I can't think of The head of Wu-Tang Clan. Rizza, Rizza. Okay, so I'm working with Rizza. And there's rap battles. I have the live records of the rap battles, which you have a hard time. They're so fast and they're, you know, they're, uh, you know, attacking each other sort of thing. And they've given me also um, not just the live, but they actually redid all the, the raps in a controlled environment. It's you're talking about mostly melodic singing, literally singing. Um, this is I'm like holy cow, unbelievable lip sync, and these rap artists have got their the most complex stuff I've ever heard in my life, and they are nailing it. And what they realized right away was that when they were doing their redo of the live version, that they had to move the same. And it made it really, really easy for me to integrate and go in and out. So consequently, not only do, you know, matching the acoustics and matching the microphones and all those other things that we mentioned are, are important, but it's the energy that's put out that I have a hard time selling. The breath, if, it, if there's no breath when obviously on stage somebody's doing this it's like obvious this is a manipulation and what's wonderful about the emotionality of music is that you're selling a performance if people don't believe it i don't care how emotional the the performance is if people don't believe it you've lost them and if somebody turns off mic like this and it doesn't sound like they turned off mic, they don't believe it. And they don't even, the audience doesn't even technically know what's wrong. Most audiences will never tell you what was wrong with the sound. All they'll tell you is when the, the, when the show finishes, like, I don't know, something was edgy and bothered me, you know? It's like, well, the guy never used a de through the whole thing. Oh, really? Um, <laughs> who, would, who would know, you know? Um, so it, it's, it's all these little technical things that you have to match and you have to work on and all that sort of stuff. Ultimately, there are certain senses of reality that you have to make sure sell the performance. Yeah, I think uh, there, yeah, in general, live uh, music recording can be put into two major categories. One would be what I would consider acoustic uh, performances, which involves no close miking or amplified speaker system. Um, and then the opposite, which would be like a, a stage-type performance where everything is close-miked, 
uh, and there's an amplification system. Uh, so, Peter, that reminds me of Walk the Line. So I wanted to know on Walk the Line, there, there's a lot of stage performances in the film. So it, did you record those live? Did you bring in extra equipment for it or what? Most of the stage performance was live vocals. The, the, we had a period mic center stage um, that we recorded the vocals from, but it was the instrumentals were fed. Um, and that uh, achieved a couple of purposes. One is you got perfect lip sync, but you also got a consistent performance throughout. The other thing which I just wanted to mention, which has to do with having the ambient sound right and so forth. One of the things we did on that show, we've done other ones, is when there has been playback track, we, we end up worldizing it and we'll end up playing back the track and then re-recording it in the space. So then there is a version of it that sounds like it was performed there. That particularly works well if the studio track is really dry, yeah. which no, I, usually they are. Real quick on that, uh, there was, from an editorial standpoint with playback, if you can take like a few takes of the playback, of the boom, yep. and you can assign it through the room yep. and use that as the natural ambience, that totally nails what Gary's talking about. And it's because it's playback, it's perfectly in sync. And so it's, there's some amazing stuff, even in playback, that you can capture with a live mic. Yeah, Ro Rhodes, we, we always had boom out in the space because with the stage bands, on, you know, concert stage bands, obviously all close mic and so on, but we wanted to get a sense of the room, and I've done that with smaller setups too, but that's very important. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering about recording that ambience in stereo. Uh, is it, um, if you, re I'm talking to, to Gary Bourgeois now. Uh, the, uh, if you received ambience in stereo, is that too complex? Is it beneficial? Oh, no, it's, it, it's beneficial. It, even if I don't use it, it's beneficial to hear it because it gives me a sense of what space I'm in. And nowadays, the uh, plugins that I use are really pretty excellent. And um, I never use a one program. I just want you to know this. I always complex my programs by cascading two or three different programs so that they're, it's a much more complex room. It's not just one program. Because what these guys are going to give me, I listen to it and you're like, there's no program I know of that does this. But I have to form my own. I just want to quickly say, Peter, I've worked with your stuff. It's like so fantastic. Thank you so much. <laughs> Go Nashville. <laughs> I was just want to add one thing to the, the live recording thing. Uh, another determination is whether you're in a space that permits it. And in the, the, in the recordings we did in Lewin Davis in particular, uh, one of the determining factors was in the main club where most of the performance was, we spent days there in advance making it quiet, rerouting the drains and so forth so that we could actually get uh, a recording of a decent performance. Um, because even though you know, it looks like a grungy club and you want to be a grungy club, you don't really want to hear the toilet flushing three or four times during the song. <laughs> when we did uh, 8 Mile, we had uh, the DJs were spinning the disc, but everything was recorded live. And it was, we had a great UPM because uh, before we flew out to Detroit, he said, I'm going to reroute all the lighting on this side, away from you guys and all. I mean, I was, that was exceptional. I was very surprised. But all those performances were live performances. And because they were so close, Mike, with the rapping and so on, uh, you know, the ambient noise wasn't not as much of an issue as it would be if you're, you know, f if you're boom micing and so on. Yeah. So this for, for David Klotz. Um, yeah. in, in preparing the, the playback tracks, mm -hmm. um, would you send f the, the playback person? Who was your playback person typically? We had uh, Jeff Zimmerman on. Was okay. it Jeff? Is that right? Yeah, Jeff was the last couple, couple of three years. So and a, a Pro Tools was rig, was I yeah. He had a Pro Tools rig on the right. set. So would you send him all the stems you had available or just select ones or what? I bet we... I got the, the stems that I would send in would be a stereo mix of the track and then all of the singers separate and all of their um, the effects printed separately so we can dry them up. And then, and then as actually the same set of um, tracks we would use on the final dub too. Okay. And, and, and you'd have a time code obviously. Yeah. And, okay. Um, we, um, I had an audio time code track. Okay. That yeah, that's I just my question. Yeah, printed so. once and it was in the session and... Um, that's what you guys used. It was a, yeah, with a right. thumb track and a click. So then, track. Phil, when you when you uh, were playing those back on the set, I assume you were recording at least the the uh, a mono mix of the playback track as reference. Yeah, um, yeah. Always had a mono mix of the, the playback. Always had a boom mic open, or uh, often in a bigger space, I would have a stereo mic out in the room somewhere, especially if we had an audience. 
because sometimes we'd have you know 50, 100, sometimes 500 people, and that would it would be amazing the the audience response that we could get uh, with a stereo mic out there in the crowd, and I could get it separated away from the playback. We played our our playback was ear splittingly loud. Um, it was never loud enough, um, and that's another thing that you battle um, constantly. Is is you know the artist wants to feel it. They want to feel it so much that they don't feel themselves, which is a, a key. Is it, that's where you can tell where somebody is not that confident in their performance, is if they want the music so loud that they can't even hear themselves sing. And so we, we battle with that a lot. So we, 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 had, a, we had a level thing. Um, but I wanted to touch on one thing before I go on in, in terms of the, the sort of specs of it all. There's there's uh, two things that are determining for me also in determining whether you're going to do something live. One is we're going to do the song 30, 40 times in a day. Now, uh, a Broadway performance, they're going to do the song once, and they may have, if they're the star of the show, they may sing seven times in a night. They're not going to sing 30 times before lunch. So you have to weigh the fact of you're going to blow the person out if they're going to, and we learned this, we learned this on the pilot of Glee. It, it was a particular shower scene and the, our, our, our actor who's not with us anymore, God rest his soul, um, he sang in the shower and that's how he ended up on the Glee Club. And we, we recorded it live in the shower as him singing a song, uh, singing, a, singing a song by Journey. And he sang his heart out and he had a scene to do after that, and he couldn't do it. He had lost his voice. As a matter of fact, he lost it for two days because he sang. He sang like he was gonna make the Glee Club, <laughs> and you know. So you have to kind of weigh that into the schedules, you know. And so that brings me to to how we did the live. We did if we were gonna do something live, we did it the last take. Um, we would do all pre all pre-record, 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 and when we get into a close-up, we do one take live, and we drop it here. We get and get that one take, and let them sing it one time live. I'm so envious because we, we were talking about the difference in schedule between TV and features, and yeah. my experience has mostly been in features. But so many musical performances we've had, we got either one or two takes about for the whole thing. They would say, well, we got all the stuff to shoot, we'd shoot all day, and then they, we'd have a half an hour before wrap, and they said, you know what we have time for? Let's do the musical performance real quick. <laughs> and, and it made it really easy to cut, because there was one take, there was, no, there was nothing to cut around. Yeah. Ours was opposite, we would, we would shoot the crap out of the music, and we'd do the dialogue in one take. That would be, that would be, and, and I, I, would, I would always ask, how did we end up this way? We, you know, we, we'd shoot you know, three cameras, 15 different ways, and then we'd have a page and have a dialogue to do in an hour. So it's, a so it's a coverage issue. It I mean, becomes that, a coverage yeah, issue, yeah. yeah. It depends what the director's concept yeah. or, and the DP yeah. everything's <laughs> doing. Te television is. Also, Glee was more of a, uh, I guess, sort of like a Hollywood musical yeah, in a sense where... And that's it's bigger than life. On, yeah, they're singing on roller coasters and jumping across cafeteria tables and, you know... Yeah, there, there, was so much, there was so much physicality in it. Rarely were they just standing in one place singing. I mean, there were, but... So many times they were, yeah, on the back of a flatbed playing a piano, singing. I mean, there was nothing, nothing real about it. So we, we kind of made it, I mean, and first of all, they were supposed to be this, this glee club that had no money, which, you know, every time, every time they would, you know, do a performance, it would be lasers and moving lights. Nobody ever asked that. But um, the, the, the whole thing about that was just the, and, and they took it to heart when they decided the show because originally they were going to make this real and that, that just went out the window. Um, is uh, we're going to make every musical performance bigger than life, and that's what that's what motion picture and television allows you to do is make it bigger. I mean, it's not a live performance where you go to, to a theater where you see them sing at one time. This is you know your opportunity to make it. Also, not crazy. to be cynical, but uh, I mean they. The producers, they, I mean, they wanted the, the song performances to sound like the records yeah. that they were selling on iTunes. Because they, they sold a lot. A lot. Yeah, I, I think, you know, Gary, you mentioned this morning about storytelling. And, you know, everything we're talking about is about storytelling. You know, in Glee, they had a different story to tell than we did on Jersey Boys than you had on your show. And, you know, depending on that, again, it's a different type of story to tell, and you're using different techniques. 
both creatively and technically. And I think that's why you're getting all these different opinions. I just um, throw something in. Um, because I'm like Mr. Post-Production here at this point. But um, I want you, uh, the audience to know that um, when you come to my, you know, the end mix, that if I get as many splits that you've recorded, anybody that thinks that I should get a two-track and this is the way the composer likes it, you're out of your mind. The most, the most splits I can get, the happier I am. And um, if I find out that I've been using a two-track and all of a sudden uh, we get into a scene where we need the splits, then why didn't I have the splits from the beginning? Because now for me to switch from that to the, the splits and try to match that is so time-consuming, it's a mess. And also, during a performance, sometimes, you know, in the storytelling process, that they cut to two people talking. <laughs> and if I've got the two-track, all I've got is volume, whap, down, and everything came down. The energy came down, the performance came down, the background, et cetera, et cetera. If I have all the splits, the sax player can come down, but the rhythm section can stay up, and I can still sell that they're in a club talking and you know, keep it alive. But without the splits, I, my hands are tied. When we did um, Almost Famous, now that was all the actors were act in the band were actors. They were not musicians, so it had to be pre-record. But Carl Caller, who was a music editor, who was phenomenal, uh, he had us do eight track, and so we had separate track for every one of the musicians. And <laughs> there's a scene there, if you guys remember, where um, Billy Crudup gets electrocuted on the microphone, and everybody stops playing at a different time. And so he was actually in post. They were actually able, or you know, to to do that and, and balance all that stuff. And uh, so, uh, and we also did the same, in Rockstar we did the same thing. Rockstar was very interesting because we had, even though Mark Wahlberg could sing, they had a voice for him, voice double for him. All the musicians were killer players. We had Zach Wilde and Jason Bonham, John Bonham's son, and Jeff Pilson was a bass player and these amazing players. So there was so much care in that that, that Actually, really quick, it's a little sidebar, but what we did, Bud Carr, who was a music supervisor, was phenomenal, and he was able to get a lot of money to do this. I've never done this in anything else we did. We actually, they had the music was written, and uh, it was period-type music from that time, but what they did is they took the band, the guys, Zach and all the guys, and we went over to SIR, and they rehearsed it for like four weeks, so they ended up doing the pre-record, so they absolutely had it nailed, and then the tribute band, they only gave them two days to learn the material, even though they were also real players. And so it was very organic. You wouldn't know unless you worked on it, but it was very organic. It translated that way. But also, we also did multi-track for all the different musicians. So when they had a close-up, it wasn't just voice. When they had a close-up on Zach doing his guitar solo, which he had pre-recorded, nevertheless, they could still go in there, tweak it, and do whatever they needed to do, and move it, and so on. And that, that's one of the beauties of working on a big budget production. But that was interesting because, again, it was all pre-recorded, but it was done with, with multi-track and, and, you know, and well, a lot of care. That's sort of interesting. My segue to that is that, um, you know, on Walk the Line, we spent two weeks in advance, you know, sitting in, in Joaquin's living room and rehearsing him and the band so that they, it was their tracks. Even when it was live, they knew what they were doing. And there was a, there was a wonderful scene. We were shooting in the prison and um, our playback system caught fire, which he was, he was very, he, he loved that. He was very excited. But what it meant is that is wow. when, when, when all that went out, the band just picked up and played and it had great energy. And, Everyone was excited, and I know that ends up in the movie. And you can, if you look in the background, you can see the smoke coming out of the speakers. What, uh, what, what, what kind of, what kind of playback were you using to cut fire? It was loud. I'll just say, <laughs> I've done loud, but that's something else. Well, I guess. part of it is, I guess, my choice of a very uh, a used, inexpensive speaker oh, that probably okay. was not really ready for the role it had. It looked great in the background where it had to be, but it looked less good afterwards. It's kind of fun doing live stuff, isn't it? Actually, no, I mean, Jersey Boys. Jersey Boys. So Jersey Boys is, you know, everything you saw was drums, two guitars, there was a keyboard, and the singers. Um, we multi-tracked everything. Every instrument on that set. Because, of course, that, that show takes, you know, that film is in the 50s and 60s. There were no microphones on drums in that time. 
but every single symbol had a small DPA on it. You know, and so you, you know, even a trio was probably 18 tracks wide without vocals. Yeah. And so, yeah, we, we certainly do multi-track. Well, want to like point out, we, that, Gary? You like seeing a multi-track uh, like that? Actually, um, I, was, I wanted to address this because in a lot of instances, uh, because of the um, musicians or the composers or the engineers, I get two-track left-right because the world of music um, is quite a bit still stuck in two-track left-right. And every mix I do, at, at a minimum, is 5.1. And um, I get, well, that's, that's the splits, that's the tracks you get. And I'm thinking, okay, well, I'll, I'll work with this. I'll do what I can. But I think a lot of times people don't realize that a separate kick drum down the middle, a snare drum down the middle. Let me put the, the space mics out left and right. Um, but if I have a bass player down the middle, a kick drum and a snare drum down the middle, man, I can make it kick and it really come alive and you know, punch you in the, in the chest. With a phantom center, um, it, it just doesn't have the same interpretation or meaning at all. And when you're talking television, that's one thing. If you're talking about a feature film, the width separation between the left and the right speakers is wide. And you don't have a kick drum down the center or a snare drum down the center, you're really missing out. Plus, and I hate to say this, this is gonna kinda throw some musicians off, but, in a wide uh, theater setting, the phantom center is eight people in the middle. And everybody over here on the left is gonna hear the left and on the right is gonna hear the right. And the composer will come in or you know, the songwriter is like, it's just not happening. It's like, what happened? It's like, if I don't have the splits, if I just have stereos, I can only do so much, and very little, actually. Um, sometimes I, you know, I create surround ambiences, I'll, I'll filter and give a little sub and stuff like that, but the difference between what you can do and what you can get with a real hard center is night and day, and also the spread, and people on the left and the right, if you've got a hard center, you've got an anchor point, it makes a huge difference. Roadies we did, they, I, I called post. Normally I don't do that because normally playback is pretty straight ahead. And I called post and uh, the pilot they did in Canada, even though they had I think 32 inputs or whatever at the, the multi-track, they post only dealt with eight. They only wanted to deal with eight because they're not spending six months to mix this down. So <coughs> I said fine. So we did have the ability, we did record all the individual tracks uh, through the Digico board, but on my two Pro Tools rigs, I did the eight, and what I did is I did a stereo mix, and I didn't have a lot of guidance, actually, which, sometimes that's good, you know, they left me up to my thing, but I have a lot of experience mixing, so I did a really wide drum stereo mix, and I had kick and bass in the middle, heavy, and, you know, cymbals were wide and so on, and I figured that way, post could sit there and either widen it out or, or narrow it, and the other thing I did is where I EQ'd the kick and where I EQ'd the bass were in different frequencies. So I figured they could go back in, and if there's too much kick, for instance, they could take that frequency down and not affect the bass and that kind of thing. So I was thinking in those terms. And then the other six tracks were basically all individual. We had vocals, separate guitars, and I think only one, of the, one or two of the bands, we had so many guitars, actually I'd do a submix there. But I was, it was very interesting because it's nice to talk with a post person because my instincts were the same thing that Gary's talking about here, which is, you know, do a great mix, but allow them the ability to go in there and fine tune these things based on not only spatial, but also frequency uh, yeah, parameters. Yeah, yeah, I think we're, we're going to have to okay. stop there, but this has been fantastic. We, we do have time allotted for a few questions and answers, right? Okay, so, um, yeah, this has been great. It, it's, it's confirmed everything I thought was right. right? <laughs> it's been great for me. Some so, uh, I want to close with, with one more statement. Um, this is mostly for the production sound mixers out there who may not, um, you know, I, I just want to instill some confidence in you people to, to consider the live recording in an acoustic environment on the set. And think about it this way. If, um, 
we all strive to get live original dialogue tracks so that we can avoid ADR because we feel that the lip sync's perfect, the acoustics match and that kind of thing. It shouldn't be any different with live music recording, right? So we can apply that same way of thinking to that. And uh, so, so always consider that the live music recording is an option before, before giving up. So, okay. I echo now, that. I really I like that concept, okay. and I Good. agree with you on so that. So now we've got some uh, uh, questions. And, uh, uh, here, here's a microphone. I got one here. Oh, oh you got it. Thanks. Oh, okay. um, this is for both Garys, I guess. Um, talking about the... Who, who, who's um, talking? We can't see. It's right here. Oh, okay. There, there we go. <laughs> um, but you're talking about um, stereo um, deliverables that you are able to not do much with sometimes when it comes to music. So I've had in the past some um, occasions where um, I would have engineers ask me for maybe uh, capabilities of doing mid-side processing. So, which you deliver in, in a two-track left-right. So they would want things that are mono as a mono-summed left-right. Is that the same thing that you're talking about when you're not wanting stereo stamps? Not, uh, it's usable. <laughs> uh, not, not particularly. Um, usually, even if I get an MS, uh, you know, I'll take one, just one side, and I'll place it where I, I need it and want it. But when I have a band playing or whatever, if I have the vocals separate from the guitar, separate from the, the various parts of the drum set, um, I, can, I can place things. And to tell you the truth, um, with experimentation, 3% um, off-center of a, a, a bass player puts him psychologically in a different space than the kick drum. Um, that, that applies to, straight, this is not about music for a second, but that applies to three people speaking at the same time dialogue. If I have control of one of those people and I put them only 3% off-center, orally, the, the audience can decipher the three different people speaking and overlapping much more readily than if they all come out of the same source. And that can't be underestimated with the music and how I can, if I have the splits, it, how I can manipulate things so that it's, the clarity is there. So a uh, question for uh, live versus uh, recorded. And so do you, does budget ever come into play in that? In other Absolutely. words, the, and who determines that? That's what, drives, that's what drives it. Almost, yeah. almost so who, all the so time. Who, who, who do you... Who's the, you know, who makes that happen? Uh, the uh, producers. The producers. Yeah, I'll give you an example. On Roadie, I have to give Cameron Crow a lot of credit because normally we come in and it's a half a day playback for me if it's straight playback. On Roadies, we had two days, and by myself, by the way, Roadies, we had two days, three-man crew. I mean, dealing with full bands. That's a lot of expense, a lot of money, and Cameron pushed that through, and, and you have to give him a lot of credit because no, normally it's not done. Now, that's, that's kind of an extreme case. They're in between situations, like, like I said, on, a, on a, a Hangover 1 where we did the Dan Band. That was done before lunch, but, we, but it was streamlined. We had the playback for the, um, uh, for the band in the in-ears and, and live for Dan. Um, but it, yeah, it's all driven by the budget. And unfortunately, when I, by the time I get on the set, a lot of times, unless it's a big budget film and I'm incorporated in the process, a lot of times they, they're telling me what they're doing and it's like, oh, this is what we're going to do. And I yeah. just have to make the best of it. I'm going to make a quick ad. Uh, one of the best shows I ever did, both in production and post-production, was a show no one saw called Carney and Carla. Connie and Carla. It's all playback. But the producers gave us four weeks of rehearsals. That's four weeks of my time, four weeks of cast time. And in those four weeks, we nailed lip sync. When we started, it was a disaster. By the end of those four weeks, the lip sync was phenomenal. And we pulled off a playback show that looked great. So that was the producers giving, spending a lot of money on rehearsal. It's, so it's, it's producers, it's money. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, go ahead, Peter. I was just going to say that the, the, the times with the Coens that we have done tracks live, it was completely an artistic decision. It just so happened it was also much cheaper to do it that way. Wow. Uh, we have another question here. This question is for Gary. Um, what do you want? I'm a music mixer. I'll give you any stems of anything. What, what, is, your, what is your ideal scenario? Because it's very easy these days to just bust things in Pro Tools and just give you stereo stems of, of everything. Yeah, stereo stems are very different. 
Um, yeah, it's very different than a 5.1 mix down. Right. Um, but uh, if, if I have enough stereo stems, I will then start working on yeah. doing a mix down of my own and, and taking the left or whatever it is and, and putting it somewhere. It's, it's just a lot of work on, on my part. I'm doing basically a music mix down session during a, a dub. So. Oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. I have no comment. <laughs> uh, we have another question from Whit Norris, I believe. <laughs> the microphone's heading towards Whit. I, I, sorry, I, I have to. I, I have to divert. <laughs> I was wondering. I have, to, I have to readdress that. I have to readdress that. The idea of somebody saying, just put everything straight across, I've, I've got the mix. Just turn them all up. I just, I, I just, I just want to say that I was doing a mix, and the composer came in once and just put everything straight across. I wrote around all the dialogue. I wrote around everything. I was the, with the director, who I did 21 pictures with, uh, Ivan Reitman, who does some pretty big pictures. Really? Okay. Ivan looks at me. I said, okay, fine. We'll put it right at zero and play it. We played the whole thing. The um, dialogue was non You couldn't hear the dialogue. It just Everything got obliterated. And when it was finished, uh, the composer looked at us and said, see? <laughs> um, and, and, and he added, by the way, what was that noise? <laughs> and I said, uh, the dialogue. <laughs> Can you do anything about that? It's, this might seem funny, but the number of, I'm sorry, but the number of times I've heard people say, just put it at zero and play it, I've, I've done everything. And I'm like, holy Jesus, are you kidding me? Yeah. All right, so what? Uh, yeah, real quick, uh, I've been asked over the last year or two when we're doing playback on the set to record an impulse response. Has anybody been doing that to map, to map a room or an environment? I've been asked that too. So can we, can we explain impulse response? Yeah. Well, I don't know if I'm the one to do it, but essentially you play a, a loud tone or a series of tones in a room. You record it, which is then used to program... Um, right. Yeah. Uh, some evolution reverb. So that the reverb can be simulated later. Yeah, I've and, done it with a balloon pop. And, and it, would like be a, it would be a wonderful thing to do, but considering that it requires all my begging and bottles of wine to get room tone, the right. idea of getting them to, to, do a, to, to do an impulse recording while the crew has to stand in the spots they were in when we shot and go through this series of tones. I don't see how it's possible, but, but I've been if trying to do it for years. By, by post-production mixers to, to do that, that, that's a good sign. Yeah, have them come and yeah. ask. <laughs> uh, I guess Jeff wants to ask uh, Jeff, one last question. Can we get a microphone to Jeff Wexler, please? Yes, we do. <laughs> yeah. That's what I was saying earlier is the real environment and what I'm looking at are usually two the different things. The people are put in these days are like, you know, horrific, um, yeah. where you shouldn't be recording anything. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I do want to give Jeff, by the way, Jeff was the mixer on Roadies and did a phenomenal job. Only, only, two, only two episodes. Well, first two, but those were, the, those were the gold standard. But, I, but it was a similar process as what uh, Glenn's talking about where we did have scenes that uh, we did not, that I did not deal with with my crew, where they did a performer in the dressing right, it was room, a straight production, and um, did it with the boom, and did that, and those were beautiful, and they worked extremely well. And then we did, of course, the stage concert. And also, stuff. again, the shout out to Cameron. Um, the fact that uh, that you were brought on very early, Gary, because we knew we were going to be doing stuff live. We knew we would possibly be doing something to playback. Possibly we'd be doing something where we recorded live playback tracks. Um, you know, on the day, all these sorts of things, so that. Um, uh, there was a lot of good advanced planning. And you still had to yeah. do some things that you weren't expecting necessarily. Oh, yeah, it's very but, exciting. But um, uh, I think the uh, finished result was great. Yep. And also, shout out to Gary um, uh, for doing Almost Famous, which was just spectacular. Um, and I think, you know, the best, the best stuff to playback uh, that I've ever done. Yeah, that um, was a good one. You know, 
totally believable. But again, they had they had five or six weeks of what he called rock and roll school um, with all the actors who were not musicians. Yeah. Uh, so they learned not only how to look like they're playing the instruments. Um, you know, a couple of them actually were were uh, musicians, bass player um, and uh, the drummer. Drummer, right? Um, but they learned how to how to be rock and roll stars. But that's but it um, comes from the you know it came, came from Cameron. So if the producer and or director and, they, and the director has enough clout, they'll get the money and they'll get the, the thing done properly. But yeah. it's all it's all dependent. It's a, you know you're li dealing with living human beings and uh, you know sorting all that out too. Yeah. Yep. I, I, before we wrap it, I, I would just like to say on behalf of the re-recording group, um, that how, how much we appreciate the music editors and the production mixers that give us great tracks, better than ever nowadays, and we appreciate how hard you really strive and work to give us the best possible thing. Well said. So something that wasn't specifically mentioned was, I think it's really apparent though, is that the importance of communication between all the sound departments, uh, for, from pre to, to, to post and, and final mixing. Uh, the, the conversation is, um, helps everybody know what everybody's thinking about and what's important to them. Uh, it can make a big difference in the final product, so. And one, another lesson, it's nice to work with Cameron Crow, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, I want to thank everybody. Um, thank you so much, Sean. And thank you, Glenn True. Thank you, Glenn. Thanks for tuning in and listening to this exclusive presentation from the 2016 Mix Magazine Sound for Film event. You can hear more conversations with sound designers, composers, and directors on the Soundworks Collection podcast on iTunes and streaming online at soundworkscollection.com. Thanks again to our sponsor, Rode Microphones, for sponsoring this podcast series, providing premium audio products at an accessible price, enabling people from around the world to achieve their creative goals. With mics for studio, video recording, and podcasting, you're bound to find the mic you need. To find out more, visit Rode.com. <laughs>